So we want to start in Ephesians chapter 3. And you say, good grief, you're going over this over and over. Yes, two reasons. Number one, repetition is a good teacher. Number two, I want us to understand that what we're looking at and what Paul is talking about is not just some sort of isolated incident or isolated doctrine. It is something that actually has to do with the beginning and the ends of history and everything in between. And because that is the situation, that's important for us to know. Now think about this real quick. The Bible actually claims to tell you how the end happens. That's a big deal. Take a moment and think about it. Anybody watch the news lately? Some of you have. Some of us haven't. Some of us refuse to. There's always speculation about various things that are going on. You'll always hear someone come up with this. And if you're trying to check out of the, the, the grocery store or something, you'll see that on Weekly Magazine or something, Nostradamus said that some guy was going to do something at some time in the future that had to do with people. You know, it's, it's very vague. It's very strange. And what it does is it creates a lot of doubt, confusion, and especially an immense fear in our society. Our society is ruled by fear. Our society is ruled by anxiety. Our society is ruled by many things that that cause such unnatural reactions, such adverse thinking. And one thing that we need to understand is, is it is all originated to be spiritual in nature. Now we're going to deal with that more heavily in Ephesians chapter 6. But the last thing that the enemy of God wants is you trusting Him for tomorrow. That's the last thing. And the fact is, and I think there's a song that says this, He's already got tomorrow in His hands. He's already got the rest of our lives in His hands. But if for some reason He can block you from believing that, accepting that, trusting that, sitting down and actually resting your person, in His mighty hands. And you will search for everything but the truth to try to make sense of today. It's severely misguided. So let's take a look at what Paul's talking about here real quick so that we can get our buzzwords out. Here it is. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship. What is the word, please? Dispensation. Does anybody here have a New King James Version? Okay, it will say dispensation on there. Okay? Of God's grace, which was given to me for you. What is a dispensation? We'll talk about it here in just a second. If you're new to this, you need to catch up. That's fine. That by revelation, remember, that's a grand revealing. That's pulling back the curtain to see what's behind it. There was made known to me the mystery. A mystery is, don't think Scooby-Doo. Okay? Get Columbo and Matlock out of your head, okay? A mystery in the Bible is something that has always been true, but God has purposely kept it concealed to Himself because He had a pinpoint time in history of which He wanted to make it known so that it would further propel His plan forward, okay? So this is a reason why us living in the church age is such a big deal. We are an incredible age of privilege. We have things nobody else had before. We've said this before, but let me just give you an instance real quick to catch you up. In the past, you read Old Testament things and you'll find that the Spirit was on Saul. 
And then when Saul got disobedient and greedy and selfish and not listening to God, God took his Holy Spirit from Saul. And this is when David has his issue with Bathsheba and Uriah, that there's all kinds of panic that happens, and David cries out, God, do not remove your Holy Spirit from me as you did from Saul. He saw it happen. The amazing thing about this present dispensation of the church that we're in is that when the Holy Spirit was given, He's not just a pawn, He indwells. God is working differently. And what God has gifted to us, He will by no means revoke it. So that's a different way that God is working now in context of the age. That would be one way to notice a separation. So the mystery is, previously you could understand, an idea of a mystery would be previously you could understand that the Holy Spirit could be upon someone and endowed them with special God-given talents or abilities to fulfill His purpose at that time. But the amazing thing about the grand nature of the church age is that every single believer in Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit. Our greatest problem is He largely goes untapped because we're scared to death of Him. He's there to lead us. He's there to seal us. He will guide us into all truth. He is the illuminator of Scripture for our present situation. He is our teacher. He carried along people in order to write down inerrant Scripture. He can also lead us in understanding. It's like reading a Stephen King novel and you got Stephen King hanging out with you. Now that's creepy, but the Holy Spirit is way better than that, okay? On a, on a deity kind of level, okay? So the mystery that's talking about here, Paul, what is this mystery? As I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, the ministry was given to me to give to you. I know a whole lot about it. And if you just read what I got to say, you'll be able to figure that out. And he's not being arrogant. He's just saying, I'm being used by God as an apostle here to do some incredible work on ground that's never been touched before. So notice, which in other generations, ah, what are we doing? I'm going to throw this pen but I'm going to throw it that way, okay? In other generations, was not made known to the sons of men, that's part of the mystery, as it was now been revealed, presently, to his holy apostles, of which Paul was one, and prophets in the Spirit. So the Spirit does the revealing. Now what is this mystery? To be specific, that the Gentiles are, one, fellow heirs, two, fellow members, three, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ. The brand new location that you move to, once you hear the gospel, respond in faith, at that moment, you are then indwelt with the Holy Spirit and you are placed into a brand new spotless position in God's sight of which He always sees you through His Jesus-colored glasses. You are as righteous as the Lord Jesus in the sight of God because Jesus stands between you and Him. That should have got an amen. I don't know what's wrong with y'all. Okay, so in Christ Jesus, notice it comes about through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light. So there's our illumination idea, the revealing there. What is the administration? What's the word? Dispensation. New King James people, they got it wrong on this one. They say fellowship. That's a completely different word. 
It has nothing to do with this. The administration, the dispensation of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden. Ages past. In God who created all things. Why? So that the manifold wisdom of God might now, presently, be made known through the church. This age, this dispensation is so special because now the manifold wisdom of God, He's using you and me in order to unfold to unseen entities the extents of His wisdom and His grace. Why do we know that? Because rulers and authorities are demonic designations. They're demonic ranks. He's preaching to the unseen realm. And He's using you and I to do it as object of His grace. How in the world could that be? Well, they actually know more about the unseen than we do. Would you agree? They know more about the supernatural. Some of us are scared to death of supernatural. Some of us think the supernatural is only a show. Some of us don't recognize that the supernatural is actually half of reality. The other half is natural. You cannot deal with anyone. Understand this. Anybody that ever comes to you and asks for advice, you can never deal with anyone on strictly a natural level. If you do, you've left 50% of the issue out of it. This is why Paul tells us, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. My fight's not with you. It's demonic before it's ever you. The enemy is involved in this from the get-go way before it's ever a confrontation that you and I need to have. Always. And that's why the the battle is fought with verbalizing the Word of God in prayer. And it's defended by all of these other truths that have already been made complete, every blessing, to us. So the defense and the offense in this entire situation. But God wants to use us in order to preach a message to all of eternity and the unseen realm and say, I'm going to use created, finite, lessers. And because you have rebelled against me, I am going to make them more. And I'm actually going to seat them right next to my son when he rules in his kingdom. That's huge. Not one person deserves that, and that's why it's all of grace. Because God is going to use us to lovingly prove a divine point to every opposition that's ever stood against Him. So notice, it's the fact that they are resting in the heavenlies. And this was in accordance with His eternal, His age-lasting purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access and confident access through faith. That's all that God requires in Him. He does not require your works. He does not require your actions. You don't have to make some sort of special treaty with Him in order to be saved. You hear the Gospel. You respond with a confident conviction. Immediately you are a child of God. Nothing stands in your way. So, here's our working definition of a dispensation. In case you you don't have it, you don't have previous uh, handouts that we've given out. A dispensation is a period of time, it happens in time, during which God is testing man's ability to govern the earth. Dispensation is oikonomia, it's where we get the the English word economy from. And it means how God chooses to run His house at any given period of time. What is God requiring? Are we going to respond well? Now, real quick refresher. 
What is the pattern of a dispensation? Every dispensation has these four elements involved in it. Number one, he gives a responsibility. God is the ultimate authority because he is the creator is going to turn around and entrust authority to you. Let me give you a prime example of this. When Laverne walked in, he gave me this pen. This blue pen, it actually has a stylus on the end of it. Everybody know what that is? I get on a touch screen and just, yeah. I thought, what in the world is Laverne doing with this? So, what, his wife must have gave it to him. She's into computers. So, but notice, I'm just joking with you, Laverne. But it's got on here, Laverne Davis, Wisconsin Dells, Wisconsin. Yeah. Now, I'm going to take it because it's got his name on it. He's entrusting it to me. So I better steward it well. But if I'm just going to bend it up, break it, everything, go, Laverne, great pen, thanks a lot, and toss it back to him, He's going to be a little bit disappointed about how I've handled the property of which he's given to me. So God is the ultimate authority, has turned around and granted subservient authority to you and me. How will we handle life? It's entrusted authority. The failure. There's always unfaithfulness that happens. Right? Any of you that ever raised children know this. Son, Take your wadded up socks and go put them in the dirty clothes. I'm a helicopter dad, right? I mean, you know. You're like, son, right? There ends up being failure in filling out the entrusted responsibility. Judgment, not for socks, but God's necessary response to sin. What's interesting about our failure is it's never minor when it's committed. It's always major. Or let's say it this way. If God were to bring us into a court of law and He was to set up shop and say, okay, what are the accusations here? God is not running short on material. God has line after line after line of where we have blown it. So there has to be justice. But the great thing about that is on the other side of justice, there's always grace. God never lacks in grace. He never lacks in grace. There will come a time when the moment of grace is done. And this is when He brings in the final return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And it is a gruesome and insane battle. But I'll tell you this, it's over pretty quickly. I mean, who's going to stand against the Lord? Nobody is. And after that comes the grace of Him setting up His kingdom. So, it is always God's favor is going to be demonstrated in some way. So, just to rehash. Last week we saw the first dispensation was innocence. The responsibility that was given to them was to rule and to have dominion. Remember that? I've made all this stuff. Have dominion. Fish, birds, animals, snakes, scorpions, whatever. You're to rule over all of it. Man, life would be a lot better if that was going on right now, right? Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The failure was making a choice off to self, based off of self, rather than being in alignment and therefore being to God's Word. Everybody remember Eve reasoning through? This tree looks pretty good. Major problem. Now we don't care about what God says anymore. All we want is what we want, and we better be satisfied now. They didn't even have drive throughs back then. They're still impatient. Judgment. The curse upon the snake, curse upon Adam and Eve, and the curse upon the ground that he doles out. But the great grace on the other side of it is that Yahweh sacrifices two animals because of their sin, doesn't, doesn't kill Adam and Eve, spares their lives. 
They will die. That will happen in time. Adam lived to be a ripe old age. He was 900, okay? 900 something. I can't remember what it was at that time. No lack of, as far as like, you know, well in years. But what's interesting about this is what they had to watch in front of them. They'd never seen the death of anything before. And God decides that He is going to, to, to do this. He brings forward and slaughters two animals in front of them, and then He skins them and turns around and takes their skins and clothes them. He covers them with His provision. He prevents them also from remaining in perpetual sin. How does He do that? Because remember, there were two trees of special designation, knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And so he sets up cherubim, celestial angelic type creatures, and a spinning flaming sword. And he said, I would rather you die than you approach the tree of life and be in a sinful state and eat of it and live forever without death in sin. A lot of times we don't view God's discipline as a means of grace. It is every time. We just don't like it because it's happening to us. We just try to get out of it because it's happening to us it's okay it happens to other people but not to us if we know that we've done wrong and we're willing to receive that retribution or that consequence of our actions on that that doesn't mean that god didn't forgive our sin it means that what you do has consequences people sometimes mistake grace as the idea of well that gets me out from my consequences no it's a fact that the lord is still walking with you in your consequences the consequences are my fault grace doesn't remove personal responsibility And this entrusted authority is God's personal responsibility. This is why I don't buy into this fate theology thing. Well, God's just going to work it all out the way that He does. Yeah, in general, He's given us the Word of God to know that. But that doesn't mean everybody put your hands under your behind and sit down. Never. It never does. There's always a responsibility in play. So, the question must be asked every time that we see this pattern take place. And that is, can mankind govern well in a state of innocence? We think. No. Notice that not even having sin on their record, they still can't handle the responsibility. The entrusted authority is beyond them. And even being sinless, they still fail. So here's the second dispensation, conscience. If you have these from last week, the charts I handed out on conscience. This one is conscience. Now that I said conscious last week, that was wrong. My hand was doing something goofy. My mouth followed my hand. That's always a bad thing. It's conscience, okay? The second dispensation is conscience. Why is that? Well, let's see this real quick about what God's dealing with before. If you have the diagram from last week, you will remember that it was body, soul, and spirit, but this was not there. And that's how Adam and Eve were when they were created. They had a mind, will, and emotions that were able to be obedient to the Lord by following His Word. But now God's dealing with sinners. He's dealing with big sinners. He's dealing with unapologetic sinners. In fact, let's go ahead and get into Genesis. And let's see the, 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 the first marital battle go down. Now, if you ladies nudged your husbands, repent, okay? Genesis chapter 3. Let's just look at verse 11, 12, and 13. I don't even think I got this up here, but I feel like we need to cover it. Chapter 3, verse 11, 12, 13. And he said, this is God talking to them, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, 
I love this. Watch this. Watch this. No, 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 no. Stop, stop. Don't, don't get ahead of me. Pay attention to how ripe this is in our lives. Okay? The woman whom you gave to be with me. Who gets the blame? Who does Adam blame? God. Pay attention to that. She's the excuse. God is the problem. We often do that. Other people receive the reaction from our sin, but ultimately we blame God about situations. This is why when something tragic happens in somebody's lives, and you hear, well, they're just so mad at God over this situation. Usually it comes with the death of a loved one. Stop! The Word of God tells us that God doesn't desire the death of any person. So how much clearer does that need to be? They often think that they need to be mad at somebody that can't speak back to them. Understand that he's already done it. People just don't want to listen. So the idea of throwing God up there and saying, God, it's your fault. Now, I guarantee you, if you go back to the end of chapter 2 when he was like, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, you'll be called woman. Woo! Right? He, hey, Listen. He wasn't looking at her all hot and sassy walking his way and saying, God, this is terrible what you're doing to me. No, says the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. Use your imagination. It was nothing but absolute, complete, supernatural joy in that relationship. But when God started asking questions, Adam decided, here comes the bus, let's throw God under it. That's a problem. We do that too often. Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And I would have, I'll ask God when we get there. Or I'll ask Adam, how come you didn't tell her no? Well, I didn't want to be on her bad side, so, you know. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? What do you have to say about this Eve? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now look at me. Where's that snake at? Let's get him. But don't look at me. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Y'all, you're still looking at me. That's how it was. So now God's having to deal with sinners. Before, he was dealing with people who didn't have sin. And all communication was honest, clear, upfront, no garbage. What happens? Well, notice that the spirit becomes separated from God. That's what dead means in the Bible. Their spirits, the very center core that gave God awareness, now become separated. How do you know that, Jeremy? Because when they heard him coming, they all hid. They walked with him all the time before. They talked with him all the time before. They wanted to hang out with him all the time before. And now that they find that he's coming their direction, their first impulse is, get out of here. Don't get seen. Don't let him find us. That's a sinful reaction to God. It's to hide. And it demonstrates separation from what inside of them resonated formally with them. There's now a fracture that's taken place. The second thing is, is that they now became self-centered and self-preservation took over. Where are my fig leaves? we got to put something on. Pause. 
We don't know how long they ran around naked in that garden before that, but here's the thing. Did it matter? No. No one cared. Why? Because no one was looking at self. God was what consumed their vision. Not themselves. Good grief, our day and age has a lot to learn about this. This, this, is, this is 4004 B.C. Facebook right here. It is. Oh my gosh, I'm naked! So I had to go down to Kohl's and thank God it was on sale and so I got these fig leaves. Look at me now. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Selfie, selfie, selfie. Good grief. We even came out with selfie sticks for a time. What is wrong with us? Anyway, what happened in this? Well, the mind began to distrust God. The will started to blame shift to everybody else. And their emotions were of fear and hiding. You realize Adam and Eve never knew fear before? Can you imagine fear coming on them for the first time? And what scared them was God's presence coming their way. So, what about their body? Their appearance was elevated. It all of a sudden became about them. Now, because they know good and evil, we move into this dispensation. First element of it is the responsibility. What is the responsibility that is given in the dispensation of conscience? Well, interesting quote here. <clears throat> if you ever get a chance to read Graham Scroggy, very good stuff. Ruling lines of progressive revelation. They don't even write books like this anymore. We are worse off for not having stuff like this now. If you can find it on eBay for a good price, great. Get it. If you can find it. Sometimes people have PDFs for free online if you can find it. Excellent reading. God's method of dealing with men during this period was along the line of conscience. He let their natural minds have free play. And the result shows that they were utterly depraved and that their course was from bad to worse. How do we know this? Well, in 3.22, Genesis 3, look at verse 22. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Now pause. We were already created like them in their image and likeness. But there's another facet that we now have because of our disobedience. And get this, we didn't need to know what evil was. If we wouldn't have known what evil was, we would have never committed it. It's a fact of going against God in this situation has now opened the door to a brand new room that we all wish we could get out of, and only Jesus gets us out of it. So notice, knowing good and evil, we now have the capacity to choose between right and wrong. And now... He might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. We don't want them to be perpetually sinful and this is when they get cast out of the garden. Now here's what's interesting about this. There were some pockets of light. In fact, if you turn over to Genesis 5, Genesis 5 is all about the line that came from Adam to Seth. We're going to deal with Cain and Abel in just a second. But, but chapter 5 is all of a great rejoicing chapter because there actually was a line of people who were seeking to abide by their conscience and choose good over evil. So notice, in verses 22 and 24, mark it if you haven't. Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. If you want to know what Enoch's life was about, read in Jude for some point. It's the only time that they record something about Enoch's ministry that he was talking about during his time. Find out what it was for him to be walking with God so, clo so closely that God didn't even let him to see death. He was actually raptured. That's what God did with him. So there were pockets of that there, but the responsibility entailed is weigh out what's good and evil. Choose good. Live by your conscience. 
So what is the problem with the failure, the unfaithfulness? Well, let's look at chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. It says, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and for his offering, but... For Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now, this isn't a mind-blowing question, but let's just ask it. Who was wrong in this situation? God or Cain? We know it was Cain. We don't know anything about the, a sacrificial system that was set up. If you look the way that the Hebrew is phrased in here, it's not even necessarily that Abel brought animals with blood as if there was the law instituted and atoning sacrifice with blood at that time. And the idea that whatever Cain was involved in with cultivating the ground and being a farmer, that that wasn't a good enough offering. That's not even really on the table here. The idea is that obviously something was communicated between the Creator and Cain and Abel, and Abel said, yes, God, I will do what you say. And Cain said, no, God, I'll do what I want. Now that philosophy is the same for today. This isn't anything unusual. We still have a dispensation of conscience in a way upon us. Why? We know what's good and bad. We know to choose one way and not the other. So now, Cain's response is not, God, you're right. I blew it. I'm sorry. I messed up. It's not repentance. It's not sorry. It's not I wasn't thinking clearly. It's the idea of now I'm mad. That's what it means, countenance to fall. It says here, then the Lord said to Cain, this is a great question. Why are you angry? I love how forward he is. Why is your countenance fallen? Here's the problem. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you are obeying, would there not be joy? What do you think? Yes, absolutely. Don't fall asleep on me. i got an extra pin here to throw. Will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, watch this. Think of the imagery in your mind. If you do not do well, from this point forward, if you make a decision towards evil and not good, Cain, here's what's going to happen. It's prophetic. Sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. Everybody get the idea of sin being pictured as a lion here? Look at this. But you must master it. Pause for a second. You must master sin that's waiting for you. Does everybody see this? How do you master sin? Well, here's one interesting thing. When you obey, you're not sinning. So when the Lord takes the time to get down on one knee and have that personal conversation with you in the Word of God, where He's clearly letting you know and He's turned on all the Las Vegas neon to get your attention about this situation. And you close the Word of God and say, I don't care what God says, I'm going to do this anyway. You've stepped into a realm where the lion is ready to tackle you down and take you out. It's crouching there, ready. What is he going to choose? What are they going to do? 
Where are they going to go? How is this going to go down? We're just waiting. Satan's not omniscient. He can't look into your mind and heart and see what you're doing. But you know what? He's waiting for whatever your response is. Why? Because he's going to use that leverage in order to take down the people of God. He loves to do that. Notice, you must master it. Rule over it. You must have dominion over it. How in the world could he do that since he's a sinner? Because he has a conscience of good and evil. And he's not oblivious to the person of who God is. And when God takes the time to talk to us like he did Cain in that way, choose good. Obey the Lord. Master sin by walking away from it and saying, Lord, I only want what you want for me. What does he do? We all know this. Cain told Abel his brother, And it came about when they were out in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. In fact, when you look in Hebrews, it says, and why did he kill him? Because Abel's acts were good and Cain's were evil. He died for righteousness' sake. It wasn't he was a bad guy. It's not that he cheated at a poker game. It's not that somehow he hacked his email. It wasn't that he drove off with his car. None of that. Didn't pour sugar in his gas tank. Nothing. It was the idea of what he did was so obedient to the Lord that that light further shined upon the evil of Cain in his refusal to come in alignment with what God wanted and exposed it to the point of embarrassment. And he was so embarrassed, he killed righteousness in his presence. How about this one? Look forward to chapter 4, verse 19. For some reason, these are areas that people don't normally read in the Word of God. Lamech took for himself two wives. I don't even know how to spell this word. I know how to spell it. There we go. I have a college degree. Lamech took to himself two wives. Now don't freak out. This isn't like, you know, early Old Testament Mormons or anything, okay? Don't freak out about that. Yeah, I said that. That's funny. All right, so notice the name of one was Ada, the other one was Zillah. And here's what's interesting. Look forward to verse 23. He's got two wives. This is completely straying from the God-given design that was going on before the fall. Before the fall, God said one man, one woman. He's not confused about that and we should not be either. He's very clear. Okay? So he says here, watch this because this is actually a song that he writes. The very first song that we ever see going on by a human being on the earth. Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech. Now notice that this is, well, that's not important. I want to talk about that. For I have killed a man for wounding me. And a boy for striking me. Now, a boy there probably means somebody that's in early 20s age, that kind of thing. Now, here's what's, here's what's worse about this. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77-fold. Now, not only is this two wives he's dealing with, not only is this a murderous situation of which he's bragging about, but in Cain's situation, when God cast him out of his presence and wouldn't let him stay in that vicinity anymore, he had to go out. He said, this is too much for me to bear. Somebody's going to find out what I did and they're going to kill me. And God said, no, Cain, I'm going to mark you. And anybody that kills you, I will bring seven times the judgment on them for doing that to you. That's grace in that situation. 
What Lamech is doing is he's taking that and he's bragging more about it. If this is what was going on with Cain, then so much more me. There should be a higher reward if I am captured kind of idea. In other words, he's bragging in his depravity. Calling God to the test. Move forward to chapter 6. Everybody gets weirded out by this. If you're in my interlocked class, this will be well-worn territory for you. It says here, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land that daughters were born to them, that the sons of God... This is not Seth's line of human beings. Sons of God is always used in Scripture. It's used three times in the book of Job and here. It's always used in Scripture to talk about celestial supernatural beings. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Now you say, man, that's weird. Yes, it is. We don't fully understand it. But God's Word is not confused about what it says. Could there really be a procreation situation that happened here? Yes, there was. Why in the world would it happen? Stop and think. Out of all the judgment that was being doled out coming out of the first dispensation, God made a promise. You're going to have a seed that's going to come about, Eve. And this seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. His heel will get bruised in the process. But he will bring a death blow. Maybe even do a little bit of this too while he's at it. Right? I'd love that. But it's got to come through the line of Eve. In fact, if you read the text closely, Eve is under the impression that when she has Cain, it might be the Savior that was promised. But it's not. So this promise is sitting on deck. Satan knows it. He's not a fool. He may do foolish things, but he's not a fool. So in doing so, how do you get rid of this coming situation which will be his impending doom? You pollute genetics. You get involved genetically to do it. And so if we can take human daughters and we can put them together with the celestial sons of God, we'll start to dilute this hereditary offspring that comes about to where now it's so messed up we can't make this happen. Now, then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So from the moment in chapter 6, verse 3, God pronounces this. In 120 years, He's going to bring this judgment. And then He commissions Noah to build this ark. Now watch this. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. This is the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown, men of reputation. Genetic distortions that actually equaled into being supernatural type giants. Or if you're familiar with Greek mythology, Greek mythology pulls the whole idea of the titans from this situation. Now, let's not play like it's not real. You, you scour the archives of National Geographic and you will find bones of massive, large, tall, making Wilt Chamberlain look small type people. You will find some of these structures that are located especially over in Middle Eastern areas in Egypt 
Turkey, places like that. And they have doors that for some weird reason are about 30 to 40 feet tall. And they're about 10 feet wide each. Now, anybody with an air conditioning bill is going to fix that. But this is a situation that is testifying to something so much greater. How else do we know that? Because when the children of Israel came through and they killed Og of Bashan on their way to the promised land, they kept his bed as a trophy to show how big this guy was they took down. How big was he? 13 feet tall and 9 feet wide. He was a large dude. God said, do away with him. They said, great, we'll obey you, God, and we'll keep his bed as a trophy. That's what they did. So this whole idea is not unfounded. It's just we live in a world that so desperately wants to cover up the supernatural so that we'll remain stupid and hooked to our TVs. That's what happens. Know the Word of God. What is the judgment that comes down? Well, chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Then Yahweh saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. This is a moral assessment. And it's divine. It's perfect. Here's what he's saying. I've entrusted this responsibility to live according to knowing good and evil because they have that capacity. And everything they want to do is wrong on every front. Imagine a clipboard and just pages and pages checking it off. Wrong, 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 wrong. The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth and He was grieved in His heart. This word is also translated sometimes, King James Version, repent. God was thinking differently about this. Why? Because God messed up? No, because He, had, he created with nothing but good intentions and everything that people had done with it on the earth that time was spoil it, tarnish it, corrupt it, and kill it. That's all they cared about. The fact that Jesus Christ saves any person is an act of grace. Recognize this. Sometimes we fooled ourselves that we're not as bad of a society as we are because we're not like those people. And we always pick somebody who we think is a lesser than us. Recognize, just as all the ground at the cross is level, all the ground in hell is level too. That's very important for us to understand. There's not one person that's not deserving of that being their permanent vacation for eternity. So the fact that God stepped forward and gave Jesus is a rescue of all proportions. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. From man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky. Why? Because they didn't steward any of that well either. For I'm sorry. I repent. I'm changing my mind. I'm thinking differently about this now that I've made them. Now the earth was, watch it, verse 11 and 12, corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. And God looked at the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Do we get the picture? Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Personal responsibility. Take care of your stuff. That's what it means. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. From under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. There's the judgment. Why was the flood 
happening. This is why it drives me nuts when I see those children's things with the giraffe hanging out like, man, there's a lot of water around here. Way more serious situation, Mr. Giraffe, than what you're thinking here. It's one thing I'm thankful about uh, the Ark Encounter, the Creation Museum and all that. Man, they got that right. If you haven't toured through that and seen that section of it, it was tragic. It was horrific what was going on. And it wasn't anything that anybody could raise a hand and go, "Uh, God, this isn't fair. I think everybody was sitting there going, God, this is totally what we deserve and more. So, where's the grace? God's favor demonstrated despite the failure in handling the authority. Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Okay? And the connotation here is the idea that what God said, He did. He followed it. Whatever God said, that's all that Noah cared about. But here's what else is interesting. This word blameless here is the idea of not being tainted, not being stained, free of any sort of wrinkle whatsoever. And it seems what happens here is not only was Noah an upstanding person who loved Yahweh with all of his heart and wanted to obey, but the fact also that Noah's genes had not been polluted by this situation with the Nephilim that were taking place. Therefore, there was still a way for the Messiah to come about. Notice that Noah, just like Enoch, he walked with God. Now here's another interesting thing. The first covenant that comes out. God made an incredible promise to Noah and to us. I will establish my covenant. My contract, it's from the Hebrew word berith. It means to cut, to cut it down the middle. My contract with you. And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind in the ark. So he's not just wiping all the livestock out. He's saying, no, we're going to bring it. We're going to start this thing again. Again, it's an act of grace. To keep them alive with you and they shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, animals after their kind, creeping things of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. So Noah went out, verse 18 and 19, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Sorry, this is in chapter 18. We move forward past the flood. But move forward to there real quick, Genesis 8. I'm sorry, time's like messing with me because I know we need to get done at a certain time. But this is important. Chapter 8. They come out of the ark. Look at verse 20. What's the first thing that Noah does when he comes out of the ark and is finally delivered out of this situation? Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh. We're going to worship the Most High Creator. He took every clean animal. They brought extra animals with them. And every clean bird. And he offered burnt offerings. 24 hours, slow roasting, carefully done offerings okay now they didn't eat it at that time it's not like brisket everybody calm down okay moving on Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma and Yahweh said to himself here's part of the covenant I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent notice this this is just the situation how it is the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth this is why discipline in the family is so important and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Here's the pronouncement. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. No global warming issues. The world is unusually hot today. I ain't worried about it. Why? 
Genesis 8.22. God said it. Either he's lying or somebody's lying. Okay, moving on. If you look at chapter 9, use your imagination. If you look at chapter 9, just real quick, the Noahic covenant. I knew we wouldn't have time to get into this. You can mark it down. You can look at it. The very first covenant that's ever made. There are no covenants before this. Some people believe there are three different covenants that are made before this. There are not. This is the first covenant that's ever brought up in Scripture. It says, verse 11, chapter 9, I establish my covenant with you, it's Noah, and all flesh, do it left-hand side, shall never again be cut off from the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Anytime we hear about, well, there might be a global flood. No, God has promised us it ain't going to happen. How did He promise this? He signed it with the rainbow. The rainbow is God's signature in the clouds to let us know He's holding fast to His promise. And that's all that that rainbow means. Get this. The second dispensation is of conscience. Let's plug it in and see how it works. Well, the responsibility, live by your conscience. Choose to do good. Respond to God's Word. If God said it, just do it. Good googly how life would be different if that was just our, our mode of operation. What's the failure? The heart of man is only wickedness always. Mankind had corrupted themselves and spoiled the earth. And through though some responded in righteousness, Enoch, Noah walked with God. We see those glimpses of light there. The overwhelming majority did not. What's the judgment? Yahweh flooded the entire earth. And what is the grace? Noah is righteous and unspotted. The Lord brings Noah and his family safely through the judgment and Yahweh makes a covenant with him for the whole world. Now, we have to ask the question again. Can mankind govern well under the idea a state of conscience. If they're given to, if you're given to choose right and wrong, will you always choose good? Will you mostly choose good? Will there even be a sliver of good? Man, we are some self-lovers. Let's be very clear. When it boils down to it, we'll either throw God or somebody close to us under the bus so that we don't get hit. It happens. We have got to be aware of our own depravity because it influences our great need for Jesus always. Always, always, always. Again, I've told you before, I wish we would change the song. I need thee every second. No, every second. Change the word. Change the hymn. Can't do that. We are. Now, need thee every second. It's a good way to go. Again, Let me give you this quote. Though we will identify eight dispensations, this quote is helpful. In most simple expression, the dispensations are seven periods of time during which God tests out seven of man's theories of government. The test is always made under conditions which are ideal for the theory being tested, but the result of each test is to show up the valuelessness of man's governmental theories. A scripturally efficient government is one which leads its subjects to the Lord in a wholesale national fashion. What are we supposed to do here? Trust the Lord. Well, how are we going to handle this situation? What does God say about it? Always going back to what God said. Always going to His Word. Measured by this standard, our present day governments are all worse than failures. This was written in 1934. I mean, Roosevelt hadn't even gotten in there yet. Right? We don't even know who Bill Clinton is yet. (laughs) Oh my is right. 
Here's what I want you to think about in closing this. Do we all still have a conscience today? Yeah. In fact, one thing that's interesting is, is when we're prompted by the Holy Spirit, something that we should do, a relationship that maybe has been neglected that we should engage, a problem that's just sitting there like an elephant in a room, and, and, and we would rather cast stones at it rather than come along and deal with it thoroughly according to God's Word. Recognize that red flags go up and we end up violating our conscience. We're told in the Word of God that false teachers are the type that have taken a hot iron and have seared their consciences so that they're no longer thinking to right and wrong. They're just thinking about self. And they're just thinking about selfishness. Recognize this. We suffer in this world from seared consciences all around us. If the Word of God is true, and it is, a million percent, the people of God should be living differently. Every one of us has a conscience. And if something has been weighing on your conscience that you have to deal with, listen to me. Deal with it. Take that step. Don't let it keep coming up from behind you and saying, when are you going to get to this? When are you going to get to this? Shh. If I just turn on the TV, it'll go away. If I just distract myself and somehow, if I can just check my phone, it won't be there anymore. And we do all these things that keep us from doing what God simply wants. Why? Remember, the conscience, the good and evil, is something that God knew before us. Man has become like us, knowing good and evil. God being perfect always chooses the good. Our problem is, is we've been choosing the evil for way too long. So let's pray. Father God, if there is a situation in our lives where we have denied and tried to quell our conscience over and over, convict our hearts now, please, by the Holy Spirit to make these things right. To not stand there angry and with fallen countenance and continue to bat away Your hands as You try to love us towards the truth. Whatever it is, Lord, that we've avoided. Father, in this time, today being the day, let us not make the same mistakes that we see as recorded in Your Word. Let us not be like Cain. Let us not be like Lamech. Let us not be a people that when you look in our hearts, you see that our thoughts and intentions are only wicked and evil always. Father, may we come to terms with how fragile we are, how broken we all are, and how desperate our need is for Jesus to be the salve in every situation. Whatever comes out of that, May we be obedient. And may You remind us as a loving Father that You are that doing the right thing, holding fast to good, being upstanding and maintaining integrity 
in these situations. It's something that makes you smile. Thank you, Father, for loving your children so much. Help us, Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name.